1914, Mexico sort of completely defaults on its foreign debt, and Mexico will not be re-permitted to enter international credit markets until the early 1940s, right? Really until 1942. So Mexico is a pariah of international finance from really the 19-teens to the early 1940s. And that exclusion makes Mexico really different from other countries in Latin America during that intervening period. And so for that, it's for that reason, I think, that beginning in the late 1920s under the post-revolutionary president Plutarco Elias Calles, um, and then going forward into the Cardenas period, et cetera, Mexico really takes this leadership role around questions of finance, around questions of debt and credit, precisely because they've been excluded in these international financial markets. So that exclusion really helps these Mexican thinkers to see the extent to which, of course, not only is it clear that these questions are eminently political, right? They are not sort of like technical, economic, financial questions. They are deeply political questions. But it also allows them to see, to, it makes very clear the kind of questions about the inequality of international power relations that are structured by international finance, right? So the Mexicans are constantly saying, like, we are a sovereign state, we have a legitimate government, and yet we're not allowed to participate in this. Welcome to Reviving Growth Keynesianism, a podcast about economic thought from the mid-20th century and why it matters to us today. Our goal is to fan the flames of a growing conversation on inequality, growth, and aggregate demand, so that we may hopefully arrive at a place of better well-being for all. Hi, I'm your co-host, Nick Johnson, and I'm coming to you today from the University of Chicago's Center for Spatial Data Science. And I'm your co-host, Robert Manduka, coming to you from the Department of Sociology at the University of Michigan. Thanks for joining us. Today, we're joined by Christy Thornton, an assistant professor of sociology at the Johns Hopkins University, where she is also the director of undergraduate studies for the program in Latin America studies. Before graduate school, she was the executive director of the North American Congress on Latin America. She's written widely for popular and academic audiences on the history of development, global inequality, social movement, and contemporary politics. We're here today to discuss her book, Revolution and Development, Mexico and the Governance of the Global Economy. So uh, Christy, welcome to RGK. Thanks for having me. So I, we always like to start out by asking, um, you know, how, how our guests got into their topics. Uh, and you have a particularly interesting trajectory in terms of your career because you started out right, writing about policy, but then you moved into history and now you're, now you're a sociology professor. So, so how did that happen? And, uh, <laughs> and how, did, how did you get attached to Mexico as a, as a site? Yeah, that's a good question. So my kind of the, the thread that runs through that long history is a kind of abiding interest in international financial institutions and particularly the role of the poorer countries in them. Um, and so, you know, when I was in college, it was the late nineties, the battle of Seattle happened not long after I got to college and I became fascinated by things like the WTO and the IMF, you know, I went to the IMF protests in Washington, DC. And so, you know, as an undergrad, I began studying the history of international financial institutions. Um, after I, I did a you know, a BA in political science and a master's in international affairs. And then I went off and I worked for a number of years. As you said, I was the executive director of this thing called the North American Congress on Latin America, which does research about U.S. Latin American relations. Um, and then I kind of be became convinced by academics that I met doing that work, very politically inflected work, that the history department at NYU could be an interesting place for me. So I, I didn't apply to other programs. I wasn't like super gung-ho about going to grad school. I wasn't, you know, trying to, you know, apply a million places to get a PhD. I went to NYU. I got a PhD in history. I taught for a couple of years in a program at a big public college in New Jersey called Rowan University. Um, that was a program in history and international studies. And that kind of gave me a little bit of an interdisciplinary foot into when this position opened up at Johns Hopkins that was Latin American studies and sociology. Um, someone encouraged me to apply. I wouldn't have otherwise seen it because I wasn't on the sociology job market. And it ended up being a good fit because as you know, Nick, the program here at Johns Hopkins is very historically inflected. So they saw something in me and <laughs> decided to hire me. So I have now made a kind of, you know, full range of social sciences. I've done political science, I've done economics, I've done history, and now I'm in sociology. So my work, I feel like brings those all together. And it's this interest in international institutions and, you know, sort of relations between those institutions, the rich countries and the poor countries, the creditors and the debtors. Um, that has always been my kind of abiding interest here. Yeah, it's been a kind of revolution in Christy Thornton's uh, disciplinary <laughs> uh, you know, uh, homes. Yeah, it's in, more in, like a long, long march through the institutions. I don't know. Right. <laughs> in, uh, yeah. 
So one of the themes that we have on the podcast is, uh, you know, Keynes's interest in political economy after revolution, right? And, mm. and your book starts with revolution as well, right? The Porfiriato in Mexico in the late 19th century had a developmental model based on international capital and industrialization. Uh, but for whatever reason, uh, it was too socially and politically unstable to actually pull it off. There was a revolution. The ideological and economic fallout of the subsequent revolution then sets the stage for Mexico's quote unquote, or what you call the revolution in development from the 20s to the 80s. Uh, and ideas about property that become embedded in the Mexican constitution and struggles with international capital over the former government's debt uh, put the revolutionary state in a unique position, right? And, and this sort of initial position then sets up the story that you tell in the rest of the book. Mm -hmm. So can you describe um, some of the struggles that the early revolutionary government is, is dealing with and yeah. their, uh, their bid for recognition and representation? Yeah, that's a great question. And you you um, you really laid out that the kind of historical transition that's so important really well there. So, you know, the Mexican Revolution is a really complicated decade long internecine political battle that has many sort of currents and, you know, lasts for an extremely long time and is in some ways kind of sui generis. Like it's not it's not doesn't follow the model of other world revolutions in many ways. But there are particular parts of it that are relevant for the story that I tell and the way that you describe the kind of Porphyrian model of development as one based on foreign capital is very important. The idea that, you know, the Porfiriato was a government that gave massive concessions to U.S. and to a lesser extent, but still to British and French and German capitalists. Um, they did this in railroads, in mines, in agricultural undertakings, huge plantations. And this had been the case, you know, for large swaths of the 19th century. So the reaction in the revolution, there are a number of strands. One is about the dictatorship itself, about democracy and kind of representation. The Another one is about the idea of kind of Mexico for the Mexicans, right? The kind of typical nationalist reaction to this kind of for imposition of foreign capital. And so that becomes a really important part of the um, revolutionary policies that I look at. So that kind of nationalism is, is really very important and is, is a thread in the way that historians talk about the Mexican revolution and the post-revolutionary period, the kind of animating revolutionary nationalism. Um, there is another thread that is about access to land. These massive concessions obviously take land away from smallholders, from peasants, from farmers um, who are dispossessed and forced into wage labor, etc. And so there is a strong agrarian current to the revolution as well, most famously, of course, with Pancho Villa and um, Emiliano Zapata. You know, they lead these bands of peasants to really argue for land reform as a key part of the revolution. So those things all come together, the kind of democratic stripe, the question about foreign you know, capitalist imposition and the agrarian parts kind of come together to create the situation that by the time, you know, to massively gloss over this history, by the time we get to the constitution of 1917, there is a political struggle that goes on over the writing of that constitution and writing into it this new conception of property rights, which really goes against the kind of traditional liberal conception because the Mexican constitution specifically says, you know, um, property is vested not in the individual, but in the nation, and that it falls to the state to kind of dispose of it for the general welfare, right? So private property is inherently now vested in the nation rather than its individual owners. And the state is given charged with this kind of duty of overseeing that with a kind of social justice bent, right? What that actually means for the Mexican post-revolutionary state and how they're able to carry out the kind of land reforms that are necessary, et cetera, right, is a long and contested. It's another, it's another couple of decades of history that unfolds there until we get to, um, you know, really the presidency of Lázaro Cárdenas in the, in the 1930s. Um, and he does some of the big land reforms. He nationalizes the oil, et cetera. Um, so those currents are really very important currents. Not only, be, not only in shaping how the Mexican actors that I study think about these things, but particularly in shaping how the international reactions to the Mexican Revolution really shape the history that I tell. So, you know, one of the key things is that this new conception of property rights really freaks out international capitalists, right? And so in France, in Great Britain, in the United States, the people who had been the holders of these concessionary properties, people who had given loans, who had bought bonds, all of these people really lose their minds over this new Mexican conception of property, really to an extent that is disproportionate to what 
what they are actually losing in the revolution, right? Like many historians have shown that actually foreign capital uh, makes more profits in the post-revolutionary period than afterwards. But the capitalists themselves, right, that doesn't stop them from launching this kind of political project of opposition to the Mexican revolutionary state and post-revolutionary state that is super key for kind of shaping the story that I tell. Right. I mean, capitalists don't always necessarily want profits if uh, if their control is contested. Exactly. And that question of sort of the prerogative of capital in Mexico is something that is a thread through the entire book over this whole period. And in some ways, the question of sort of what development should look like and how the institutions should be built to um, to govern it is about, you know, creating some constraints on the prerogatives of capital. And that's what the Mexican state is really trying to do from, you know, the 1920s up through the 1980s. So one of one of the one of the most important interventions of the book, I think, right, is that you're setting the Mexican Revolution in this international frame, and you're looking at how it's dealing with the global issues, the fallout from these, this um, loss of international capital, which it has relied on for for so long. Which which uh, you know, as I understand it, the Mexican Revolution is generally written about in a in a sort of nationalist frame. Mm -hmm. The historiography is mostly mostly that way. So, so what what are these new ideas about credit that come out of this inter, mm -hmm. the, the internationalist uh, dimensions of the revolution, uh, and and why is it so important to to subsequent Mexican history? Yeah, it's a really good question, and you know, it is true that like the vast majority of Mexican historiography is written with this idea of revolutionary nationalism. There's a Touchstone book published in the 1970s that is about the kind of revolutionary nationalism of the Mexican Revolution, and really go goes into the kind of relations between the United States, Great Britain, and Mexico to kind of um, demonstrate that nationalism. What I think that thread kind of ignores is the extent to which. Mexican post-revolutionary state actors understood that the kind of securing of their own kind of national sovereignty required international agreements, right? Required international institutions, new kinds of frameworks. Um, and so they fought for those kinds of new international frameworks repeatedly in this period that I trace from the 20s to the 80s in ways that the previous historiography just has not acknowledged, right? So nationalism has as a kind of Janus face, as the kind of other side of the coin, always this kind of internationalist impulse, particularly smaller countries, right? The, their nationalism has to be guaranteed by these kinds of international um, institutions. So, you know, credit becomes a really key aspect of the way that Mexico approaches this precisely because of the kind of complicated financial history that derives from that Porfirian period that you mentioned and what happens during the revolution. So, you know, Porfirio Diaz had taken out and, you know, under his, under his rule, Mexico had taken out a great deal of foreign debt, right? Sold bonds, taken out bank loans, et cetera. And when Diaz is deposed in 1910 into 1911, that debt is defaulted on, right? And so that is something that foreign holders of the debt are very concerned about. Many of them in London, of course, also in Paris and to a lesser extent in the United States. But, you know, because this is before the establishment of the Federal Reserve and, um, you know, it's, it's before U.S. kind of overseas branch banking is a thing. But anyway, that is going come to come to become an important aspect of this relationship. So the financial relationship emerges as uh, kind of definitional because not only is the kind of Porfirian debt repudiated by the revolutionary leaders, right, under a framework that we might today think of as kind of an odious debt framework, right, but actually the in the kind of um, upheaval that happens in the early revolutionary period, the one of the early revolutionary leaders, kind of a usurper, comes in in the in the early mid period. Huerta, he manages to take out a new international loan, right? He manages to convince international creditors that Mexico should get a new loan to fight its revolution. That he is going to lead a kind of more conservative faction of this, and so the creditors should kind of you know stick with him. So he manages to take out a new loan, which nobody thought was possible in the upheaval of this war, and then he immediately defaults on it, right? He's deposed and he immediately defaults, and so in 1914, Mexico sort of completely defaults on its foreign debt. And Mexico will not be re-permitted to enter international credit markets until the early 1940s, right? Really until 1942. So Mexico is a pariah of international finance from really the 19-teens to the early 1940s. And that exclusion makes Mexico really different from other countries in Latin America during that intervening period. The 1920s, of course, is this period in Latin American history that we know as the dance of the millions. And that is the kind of influx of speculative capital then you know, coming from the kind of newly loosed financial sector in the United States during the kind of boom of the 1920s, also coming from Europe, of course. 
Mexico doesn't get any of that. Mexico does not participate in this kind of speculative bubble because nobody will lend money to Mexico, right? Mexico is an international financial pariah. And so for that, it's for that reason, I think, that beginning in the late 1920s under the post-revolutionary president Plutarco Elias Calles, um, and then going forward into the Cardenas period, et cetera, Mexico really takes this leadership role around questions of finance, around questions of debt and credit, precisely because they've been excluded in these international financial markets. So that exclusion really helps these Mexican thinkers to see the extent to which, of course, not only is it clear that these questions are eminently political, right? They are not sort of like technical, economic, financial questions. They are deeply political questions. But it also allows them to see, to, it makes very clear the kind of questions about the inequality of international power relations that are structured by international finance, right? So the Mexicans are constantly saying like, we are a sovereign state, we have a legitimate government, and yet we're not allowed to participate in this international financial system, right? And so the, the kind of idea that you referenced in your question emerges in the 1933 Montevideo Conference, which most Latin Americanists and U.S. foreign relations historians know as the moment when the Latin Americans finally convinced the United States to kind of sign a, sign a contract for non-intervention, right? The Montevideo Accords basically say that the United States shouldn't militarily intervene. But in fact, the other thing that's going on at Montevideo is this fight about debt and credit led by the Mexican finance, Mexican foreign minister, Jose Manuel Puig Casarranc. And Casarranc Frank arrives at Puig arrives at the um, at the Montevideo conference with these kind of radical new ideas about debt and credit, and he has this idea. He says that you know there needs to be what he calls a new legal and philosophic conception of credit that recognizes the kind of reciprocal relationship that's involved in credit. And you know, part of your question is what does it mean for debt for credit to be a social relation? And what Puig says is. You know, the lending countries, these the banks, um, the financial institutions, the, you know, the like sort of organizing of the bond buying, they need to recognize that they need the debtors as much as the debtors need the creditors, right? So he says this thing about how debt is a is a um, equation of at least two terms. Fin financiers who have, you know, excess, they have surplus capital, they're only going to make more money on that if they can find somebody who will actually borrow their money and pay it back with interest, right? So he's making the case that the debtor is as important to the relationship as the creditor. Despite this, despite the kind of reciprocal relationship that is in inherent in international finance, there is a kind of um, hierarchy involved in um in international in how this works on the international sphere. And so he's really making an argument that the credit form itself has become a kind of ordering principle for international politics. And that's something that you know later scholars are going to pick up when we start to get into questions about, for example, ratings agencies and how credit scores are managed on the international scale. So, you know, the kind of scoring of, um, you know, the there's neoliberals in Quinn Slobodian's book Globalists, he writes about this idea of of a kind of, gosh, what does he call it? There's basically like a, an a interest rate theory of civilization. That's what it's called. Um, and so that the idea of the interest rate theory of civilization basically says like, you're more civilized if you can get a lower interest rate. And that is what the Mexicans are kind of picking up on in the 1930s. They're saying, you're trying to say that we are not as legitimate of a state. We're not as legitimate of actors because you won't let us participate in this thing. And so that then really becomes the spur, the impetus for Mexico to really argue for these various kinds of institutions and institutional reforms, the questions of, re of representation that we were talking about before and redistribution, that really becomes the spur for why they fight for those things during this period when Mexico is excluded from the financial system. Once they kind of get back in the good graces of the creditors, right, they're going to back off of their sort of trenchant critiques and they're going to refuse to take a kind of leadership position. But as long as they are excluded in this way and, you know, until the money is kind of flowing again and they're kind of invested in the international system in the way that it works, they, they launch these really radical critiques that are based in this idea of the kind of credit credit as an ordering principle of international politics and the kind of inherent injustice in that. Yeah, I mean, I, it is sort of amazing to read your account of the of the conference and these statements that they make, which, I mean, like you said, are just so stark to happen at like a diplomatic meeting between representatives <laughs> of different countries. It's, yeah, it's, it's really, really incredible. Uh, and yeah, I guess I was sort of wondering, I mean, this 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 particular conference was in 1933, I think, right? right. So right in the middle of the Depression. Yep. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how, yeah, sort of 
the role of the of the depression and all of this or how how Mexico responded to the depression, especially sort of in this, you know, on the world stage or in its negotiations or relationships with other with other countries? Yeah, that's a really important point. And it's a kind of key um, a key moment that gets a little bit glossed over in the book. You know, one of the things of, of writing this book um, the kind of question of like, why does anybody need to know these kinds of particular details, like trying to figure out. So for you guys, what happens at the 1933 London World Economic Meeting is probably really interesting, right? And for the rest of the world, like I did not need to write about what was happening there in depth. But what does happen at the um, 1931 World Economic Meeting, which, you know, your listeners will probably know is this famous moment when Roosevelt kind of, you know, he has his bombshell message and he blows up the idea of international financial cooperation in favor of kind of protection of domestic national interests interests. The Mexicans arrive in London and there the the person who kind of leads up the efforts is somebody who was involved all the way back in the 19 teens in kind of defending Mexico's kind of sovereign right to its new property regime is this is this guy called Alberto Jotapani, Alberto J. Pani. And Pani is a kind of long, he was, you know, a kind of longtime revolutionary state official, a kind of, you know, he's been characterized as a conservative developmentalist. He's not, he's not like a socialist. He's not a radical, but he shows up at London and he makes very clear we're in 1931, right? He makes very clear that in fact, Mexico has already undertaken all of the kind of counter cyclical policies that will become canonical with the kind of Keynesian revolution. He says like, we've already done this. He he actually shows up and he says, you all are talking about kind of, you know, counteracting the great depression with these various kinds of policies in Mexico, we've already done it and it's working. And so he really makes a very strong case, uh, a kind of, you know, proto Keynesian case there that Mexico is in fact in the vanguard of kind of responses to the, the downturn of the depression. And what happens there is that leads this one particular foreign office, you know, British foreign office official to kind of look at what happened in in um, London. And the Mexicans are very, you know, very clear because they are a poorer country, because they are excluded from the financial system. They say like international cooperation on this is going to be entirely necessary. Again, this is the internationalist bent. And so they are incredibly disappointed when the Roosevelt bombshell message happens. The British are kind of watching what's happening here. And there's uh, there's a memo. I found a memo in the um, British National Archives with this foreign office staffer where he writes something like, you know, he's very impressed by Mexico's performance at the World Economic Conference in London. And he's looking forward to the Montevideo Conference. And he says, you know, Montevideo is likely to bring about a contest among the Latin Americans for sort of, you know, who's kind of um, who's going to be the most important power in Latin America going forward. And he says, there's this one line that I quote in the book where he says, you know, Argentina has the resources, but Mexico has the theories. And that idea that the Mexicans have the theories about not only sort of the their domestic economy, this kind of, you know, counter cyclical response to the depression, but, you know, in arguing for the kind of international economic institutions and agreements, that's really recognized in that moment in the early 1930s by these British foreign office officials. And so that moment is definitely really key to kind of setting out the agenda that, that will be pursued by Mexico over the next couple of decades. Oh, that's a, that, that is an amazing moment to recount. And so, you know, as you were saying, they then sort of, I mean, starting repeatedly, it seems like try to you know, create some of these institutions or some mm-hmm. sort of international institutions. And it seemed one thing that was a little bit surprising to me was sort of on the one hand, how like how almost successful they were or like mm-hmm. how widely accepted a lot of these proposals were over the course of the 30s and into the 40s. And it seems like they were able to get a lot of stakeholders on board, both countries and even representatives of uh, of like the United States or richer yep. countries. And then what happened over and over, it sounded like was that um when it gets to the U.S. Congress, uh, lobbying from U.S. capitalists sort of shuts it down. Right. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and sort of, you know, both how they were able to create this agreement and then also why it was that U.S. capital was so opposed to these these programs and how they were able to, to shut them down. Yeah, that's a really great point. I have an article in the Cambridge Review of International Affairs that kind of lays this out in a, like a sort of schematic way, because there are these really important moments where Mexican officials with their Latin American counterparts and eventually with other third world counterparts are able to convince U.S. officials, U.S. negotiators, for example, people in the State Department and the Treasury Department of the kind of 
logic and justice of their ideas. So for instance, you see the United States taking up the idea of the inter-American bank, right? That's what there's a key chapter about the creation of what would have been the world's first multilateral development bank. It is this Mexican Latin American proposal that is then kind of taken up and co-opted by Harry Dexter White. And that is the first of these kinds of key moments where, you know, the U.S. government comes completely on board. And then the in that case, it's the banking sector, it's Wall Street that is terrified of a kind of government backed bank as a competitor to private banking in Latin America. And so they organize, you have Randolph Burgess of National Citibank and a whole host of other kind of very important Wall Street bankers um, really intervene with Carter Glass and the Senate Banking Committee and make clear, make sure that, you know, the treaty ratifying the Inter-American Bank doesn't go forward. Many of those ideas then, of course, are rolled into some of the Bretton Woods institutions and kind of watered down forms and forms that are like sort of better on paper than they will be in practice, right? Um, And obviously, Eric Heliner has also written about this. The next moment where this happens in a really key way is at the negotiations over the International Trade Organization in 1947-1948 in Havana. Of course, this is a U.S.-backed or a U.S.-created initiative, right? The United States kind of writes the early drafts of the ITO, makes clear that, you know, the kind of early drafts are sort of very free trade. The idea is to just get as much you know, reduce tariffs as far as possible, get as many countries onto most favored nation principles as possible. And over the course of the four or five years of negotiations, right, um, not only Latin American countries, but even places like Australia really argue for a kind of developmentalist bent in this institution. They argue for protections for infant industries, et cetera, such that by the time we get the actual agreement, the actual Havana agreement in 1948, it has built into it all of these considerations for development. Um, And so, you know, in that moment, again, the having the observations of the British observers are amazing. The British National Archives is full of these kind of incredible off the cuff. They like write these things on the cover sheets where they're like, oh, this guy is such an asshole. Right? And it just gives you this like really, um, really frank judgment on what's going on. And so there, you know, the British are, they write that they're astonished at the level of concessions that U.S. negotiators have given to the Latin Americans, right? And so again, that's a moment where the U.S. officials, right, they negotiate, they come on board, they say, yes, okay, this is the kind of institution we're going to create. But in that case, they might be doing so knowing that it'll never get through Congress, right? And so then you have, for instance, the National Association of Manufacturers, the National Foreign Trade Council, like the kind of big, important, um, actually even the American Bar Association will eventually become important here, questions about international law. So you know, there again, you have kind of the organized power of U.S. capital through these lobbying institutions, et cetera, intervening in the congressional approval of this new institution and forcing it so that it doesn't actually come into being, right? And so that's why we get just the GATT and we lose the ITO. And that is specifically about the idea that this institution has given too many concessions to and, uh, you know, sort of affords too many protections from the prerogatives of global capital to the developing world. And that there, you know, the National Foreign Trade Council, the National Association of manufacturers, they're explicit about that. And then that happens again in the 1970s with the Charter of Economic Rights and Duties of States, which is kind of where the book ends. And there again, you have the idea that the developing countries have tried to create institutions that might constrain the prerogatives of capital. And you have those same institutions, right? Again, the National Foreign Trade Council is super important, um, arguing against anything that is a constraint on their prerogative, right? And so I, here again, it's it's about, that's why it's about the governance of the global economy. It's about the governance of capital, right? Because the idea is the poorer countries are constantly trying to create rules that might actually constrain how capitalism works around the world. And the capitalists are constantly fighting to kind of shake off those shackles. Yeah, for me, this is really the pivot of the book, because there are so many um, sort of thorny conceptual questions that, that you have to sort of work through here, right? Namely around the origins of development, but also like the nature of hegemony and its actual unfolding in the post-war period. Mm-hmm. But before we get to those, I was actually wondering if you could, it's a little bit outside the bounds of the book proper, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the coalitions in America that actually do make these concessions and are willing mm. to sort of partner with Latin Americans in this, or, you know, follow their lead, so to speak. I mean, who is it uh, that's actually buying these ideas and, and is persuaded? Yeah, it's a good question. And it's different people at different times, obviously. And, you know, one of the interesting things about, you know, trying to write this, like I'm a historian of Latin America, and I had to learn a great deal about the sort of internal functioning of the US state, and, you know, learn about the kind of historical rivalries, for example, between the New Deal 
Treasury Department and the New Deal State Department and, you know, try to come to understand these kinds of dynamics within the United States. So in the early period, you know, um, we have somebody like Harry Dexter White in the Treasury Department, who was an advocate from the earliest days for increasing aid to places like Latin America and China. He writes very strongly about the need to do this, you know, and he is an interesting character. Obviously, if you've read the kind of biographies of White, you know that, you know, he will eventually be, you know, pulled up in front of HUAC, the House on American Affairs Committee, and he will die of a heart attack not long after, you know, being basically interrogated for, you know, spying for the Soviet Union. He is very taken by Soviet planning. He's a, he's a planner. And so he kind of looks to the Soviet Union and he says, this kind of planning is actually working, right? Um, and so he thinks that that is something that can be adopted. And so he sees in these Latin American proposals for an inter-American bank, et cetera, the, the kind of impetus toward that, right? And again, the thing that's important to me about that is that in these cases, you know, obviously white is not arguing for a kind of communist revolution. He has seen a way that he has come to understand these institutions will be necessary to kind of save capitalism from itself. There is a kind of constant idea. And obviously this, you know, threads through a great deal of kinds of Keynesian thinking, right? But the idea that there are these tendencies that are self-destructive and that they need to be constrained in particular ways, that is what White comes to see. And that's why I think he comes to take on board these criticisms from the Latin Americans, from the Mexicans in particular. He has kind of close personal relationships with people like Antonio Espinosa de los Monteros, who's the head of the Mexican National Development Bank, Nacional Financiera. They were at Harvard together, like, you know, White calls Espinosa de los Monteros Tony through the whole Bretton Woods conference, like they're boys. So that kind of personal relationship is important. But he is also a person who is kind of taken with some of these kinds of planning ideas, these institutional ideas. So he plays a really important role there. In the context of the ITO, there are kind of particular, there it's interesting because there's a real contest, right? The, the lead negotiator for the United States is a kind of staunch free trader, a former cotton magnate. He like, you know, absolutely wants nothing more than the reduction of all tariff barriers and non-tariff barriers, especially. Um, but there are other people within particularly the State Department. So there's this kind of State Department functionary, mid-level guy who, you know, we might not necessarily hear anything about named Merwin Bohan, who basically comes to say, you know what? Like, the criticisms that these people are talking about, we can't just ignore them, right? We need to actually take this on board. They are saying important things here. You're not just going to steamroll free trade over these people. This is not going to work. And so, again, you have these kinds of internecine struggles within the U.S. state. By the time we get to the 1970s, it's super interesting because the person who has kind of decided to kind of let the Mexican, the president, especially Luis Echeverria and his lead negotiator, Porfirio Munoz Ledo, and his U.N. ambassador, Jorge Castaneda, kind of, you know, let the Mexicans create this charter of economic rights and duties of states that they argue for over two years. The person who says like, okay, yeah, let them do it is Henry Kissinger, right? And so you have um, all of these, you have former businessmen in the Senate, people in the State Department, et cetera, who argue very strongly against this idea of the charter of economic rights and duties of states. And it's Kissinger who's kind of like, you know, trying to help Mexico get this project done for geopolitical reasons, because he wants to keep the Mexican state in the early 1970s kind of in the U.S. camp and not lean further into non-alignment, which is the real concern at that moment. So again, we have these kinds of strange bedfellows where it's, you know, in that last chapter of the book, it's Henry Kissinger who's kind of arguing to like let the Mexicans do what they're going to do. And it's because he ultimately thinks it's going to be inconsequential. It's not because he's like taking on board their ideas, right? He just thinks it's not going to matter very much. But again, there he has the kind of pressure from the business class, and it's exerting that pressure through these other parts of the state, these particular senators, people in the UN apparatus who really push back against that. So that question of sort of how this struggle works out within the US state is a super important part of the book and really gets into some like nitty gritty kind of um, historical detail that again, like only nerds like you guys would be interested in. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Well, well, thank you for sharing. Um, yeah, you, you've got this uh, this great quote from Kissinger. You know, businessmen are certified morons, right? Yeah. And he's got this idea that, like, okay, yeah, that capital does have these self destructive tendencies, and you do need uh, government to sort of constrain or shape it and, and channel it in the right mm -hmm. directions. Otherwise, um, you know, you're going to lose on on the world stage, and that's that's very important. And for Kissinger, the, the like sort of overriding geopolitical question was more important, right? He didn't really care about like the institutions. He wasn't necessarily arguing that like, yes, 
that there should be these kinds of constraints on multinational corporations. For him, it was more important that, you know, Mexico be kept in the kind of liberal U.S. camp and not sort of throw in its lot with the more radical sectors of the third world, places like Algeria, which were arguing very strongly, you know, not not even just, you know, sort of going with the going with the Soviet Union, but the threat of non-alignment, right? Kissinger says this thing at one point where he says like, you know, if more and more countries become non-aligned, then we in the United States are the ones who are not aligned. We don't have anybody to align with us, right? (laughs) And so his fear is really the kind of, and, and this, you know, getting into, you know, obviously the kind of Kissinger as realist slash idealist question, but for him, the geo, the geopolitical is the thing that's really driving that. Right. Okay. To sort of, connect the two moments in the 1970s to the 1940s that we were talking about. Okay, so so this idea is for the Inter-American Development Bank eventually get overtaken by World War II and by Bretton mm-hmm. Woods, right? And they become the IMF and uh, the World Bank. Mm-hmm. And those are famous, at Bretton Woods, there's famously a few conferences, one shared by White, one shared by Keynes, and they, they mm-hmm. come up with the IMF and the World Bank. But there's, there's a third one that you talk about mm-hmm. uh, that nobody else talks about. Right. So, and it was chaired by uh, the Mexican president. So can you, yeah. can you tell us about that third conference and why it's so important? Yeah. So that's a really, that's like a kind of key thing that got me into thinking about this in the first place. So the question of sort of like why we don't know this, right? So the Bretton Woods conference is organized into these kind of three commissions, the commission on the bank chaired by Keynes, the commission on the fund chaired by White, or maybe it's the other way around, I can't remember. And then the third commission is um, on what's called Other Means of International Financial Cooperation. And that one is chaired by the Mexican finance uh, minister, Eduardo Suarez. And so the interesting thing, if you go back and you look through the planning documents for Bretton Woods, is that the conference itself is kind of very highly orchestrated by these officials in the Treasury Department, right? They write up these kind of very detailed plans for what needs to happen. And here, before we started recording, we were talking about kind of questions of multilateral legitimacy. And here is a place where you can really see how important that is to the United States in this moment at the close of World War II. Because, you know, when planners in the Treasury Department under Harry Dexter White are thinking about the Bretton Woods Conference, they not only are going to give the this kind of chairmanship to Mexico, right? A kind of recognition of the important place of Mexico in, in a way that is, again, about keeping Mexico in the U.S. camp in that way. But they kind of write out these long plans for sort of who's going to say what when. And they do this weird ventriloquizing, right? Where they say like, okay, so, you know, we're going to introduce the International Monetary Fund and the finance minister of Brazil is going to stand up and give this speech about it, right? And it's like, they don't consult the finance minister of Brazil (laughs) about what he's going to say. And so there, you know, here that seems to indicate and so there's a similar one for Mexico. They're here, we're going to tell you about the bank, and then the finance minister of Mexico is going to get, get up and give a speech in support of this. And that would seem to us to indicate, again, the kind of top-down, you know, the, the Latin Americans are there only to sign in the place for the signature, which is something that a British official says, right? So when I'm reading these documents, I'm thinking, oh, man, maybe these U.S. officials really are thinking about this in this way, that these Latin Americans are just there to kind of be, you know, sort of, in some sense, sock puppets, right? But then I turn the page, and there's a speech there that is written in the exact same way for the British Chancellor of the Exchequer, right? And so not only are they doing this for these Latin American officials, who some of them might think of as their subordinates, right? You know, Harry Dexter White is unusual in that he does not have that kind of derogatory relationship with Latin American economic officials that people in Great Britain especially do, but other people within the Treasury Department do as well and the State Department. But, you know, then there's this document there that is like, you know, basically this low-level Treasury official writing down what the British Chancellor of the Exchequer is going to say at the Bretton Woods Conference right? So the kind of level of planning there indicates to me, and the the inclusion of these various different actors indicates to me the extent to which the kind of multilateral legitimacy of this was incredibly important for white and for the United States. And this really pisses Keynes off, right? He's like, he's really mad about the inclusion of all of these Latin Americans. There's the famous quote that says, you know, he's the Bretton Woods is being set up to be the most monstrous monkey house in years. Like he just thinks that, you know, these people are unimportant. And so that again, in the British National Archives, I found this incredible document document with this British Treasury official basically arguing that, and it's one of my favorite quotes in the book, where he argues that it's ridiculous to think about including the Brazilians and the Mexicans. And then there's like a parenthesis that says, although I understand the Mexican you know, representative in July was trained at the London School of Economics. Um, and then he moves on. It's ridiculous to think that they would participate at the same level as the Belgians and the Dutch, right? So even an LSE trained economist from Mexico couldn't necessarily, couldn't necessarily couldn't be as kind of smart and important as 
as you know some random Belgian economist, right? <laughs> so that idea is one that like very much obviously not only shapes kind of how the British arrive and think about what's going on there, right? But the Mexicans are very clear, like they, they know that they're being treated this way. And their response to that is something that definitely shapes how they approach those negotiations as well. Yeah, I mean, the some of the quotes that, that you have in the book or that you were just describing now are, are really incredible in terms of the derogatory way in which they were they were viewed. I guess one thing I wanted to ask you to elaborate a little bit on is so you described how, you know, from the point of view of the US Treasury Department, you know, they're sort of scripting this whole thing, it seems like, and like assigning roles, you know, not just to the Mexicans and the Brazilians, but also even to the British. Do you, so so is that sort of the extent like that they needed legitimacy and so they were, you know, working to make sure that it seemed like or that they either they got on on board or that they made it seem like they had support from all these countries or or was there sort of actual, I guess, more like direct agency from the Mexicans in particular from other countries mm. in general in terms of shaping the way the conference unfolded? Yeah, absolutely. So I should say that, you know, like, again, as we know from histories of planning, right, like the plans are written down on paper and that's not necessarily what happens when you kind of like when you hit the ground running, right? So the the kind of, um, you know, the outline that the Treasury official writes for how things should go is absolutely not how they go. And, you know, over recent years in the last decade or so, we've come to learn a lot more about what actually happened during Bretton Woods when these transcripts are kind of unearthed and digitized and people begin to use them to a much greater extent. And one thing that that has allowed is to be able to see the extent to which, you know, these people from, you know, countries in the global South, which were mostly Latin Americans, right? 18 of the 44 countries at Bretton Woods are from Latin America. You have representatives from India, from Iran, from China, but the Latin Americans are really predominant. And so you can really see in these documents, the extent to which there is kind of not only just kind of participation and agency, right? But actual contest about what's going on. There is, you know, there's actual sort of pushback in a way that the British, you know, conception that the Latin Americans are there to quote unquote sign in the place for the signature. When you actually read through the transcripts, you can see the extent to which there is actual contestation going on during the conference itself. And so, you know, the chapter about Bretton Woods really indicates, you know, emphasizes a, a couple of interventions that the Mexicans make. So they're, they are very clear that they don't want, for example, currency, currency valuation decisions to be only able to make, be made by the, by the richest countries. Um, basically, the way that the you know IMF agreement is the articles of agreement are written at first would make it so that you know the kind of quorum necessary would mean that basically the United States and Great Britain could get together and basically decide to devalue other countries' currencies without the input of those countries. And so the Mexicans are very clear. They say this is one of the things that you know is absolutely a sovereign prerogative that you know no rich country would ever allow another country to do this to them. And so they change the kind of formula there. Now again, that's it, it, to us it feels a little bit like nibbling around the edges. Right. It's like, yeah, of course, eventually the IMF will be able to say like, OK, now you need to do a devaluation or you're not getting this bailout loan. Right. But in that moment, the question of kind of creating these governance structures, there was a clear disparity. And the Mexicans really fought to try to rebalance that disparity. The one of the key things was the idea. And this is an idea that Keynes himself puts forward. Right. Like the idea of imbalances in balance of payments, right, happen not just by, from the poor countries, not just from the debtor countries, but from the creditor countries as well. And so the countries that, for example, you know, are the rich countries, when they have a particular kind of balance of payments problems, they could be the source of the balance of payment problems for a trading partner that is a poor country, right? And so that recognition that there needed to be some mechanism for writing the problems that are being put forward by the rich countries, that's how we get kind of the scarce currency clause. Now, of course, again, that's one that, you know, we never, the IMF never comes to use, right? There is never actually enforcement of the scarce currency clause levied against the United States by the IMF, but it's written into the rules. And so that is a key thing that the Mexicans intervene on as well. They make sure that there are two permanent seats among the executive directors of the IMF for Latin America. Um, that's kind of written in from the, from the get-go. And then the most important thing they do, and the thing that's kind of the pivot of the book, of course, is to make sure that that the World Bank will focus not just on reconstruction, but also on development, right? And so that is something that they had been obviously pushing through the whole inter-American bank process in the 10 years before. And, you know, we have the young Mexican economist, Victor Urquidy, who's like, I think he's like 26 at this point. And he stands up in this, in, you know, the meeting about how the articles of agreement for the World Bank are being written. And he gets up in front of Keynes and he, you know, sort of stammers through and he says, you know, uh, Mr. Chairman, if I may, before, uh, before we're all too dead, we need to make sure that we attend to, um, you know, to development as well as reconstruction. And so he remembers this as he remembers Keynes as being 
sort of very dismissive and very kind of haughty toward him. Um, the actual transcript like makes clear that Keynes is like, oh yeah, okay, the language should be this way and you're fine. And that, like, that's how that'll work. And so it is on Mexican initiative that the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, that the development part is really emphasized there. And so that comes from before, from the Inter-American Bank moment and from these negotiations between Harry Dexter White and you know people like Antonio Espinosa de los Monteros, but it gets codified at the Bretton Woods Conference because of this intervention by this young Mexican economist, Victor Akiti. There's famously sort of two uh, conceptions of revolution, right? There's the kind of one that comes out of the French Revolution, which is a um, you know quantum leap forward. It's an advance. It's something that makes progress happen. Mm. Uh, it's like the scientific revolution or something like this. But then there's the older definition, right, which has to do more with like astronomy, right? It's like the the idea of an orbit. You make one mm. revolution <laughs> around the sun. Okay. And and I, to me, that's sort of the story of your book, right? It's like you start out with the Porfiriato, dependent on these the international capitalists. You come through this sort of critique of multilateral institutions or, or <clears throat> critique of international capital, desire for international institutions, and you get them. And then Mexico defends them, right, in the 50s and 60s and 70s. And then it, it comes around again. So, so can, you know, a fam very famous way that anyone familiar with contemporary Mexican politics will know only too well. As you point out at the end of the book, uh, AMLO doesn't even want to spend on COVID because he's scared of uh, pumping up debt levels debt, because yeah. the IMF will get you. Uh, if you have too much debt, um, yeah. is the idea. Why did the IMF need defending and why did Mexico mm. defend it? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. And you're right. I, I like the kind of revolution revolution idea that you put forward there, the idea of kind of, you know, coming, coming around full circle. Um, you know, one of the epigraphs of the book is from the 18th Brumaire, the idea that all these revolutions have, you know, perfected this machine instead of breaking it. One, one of the kind of key... <laughs> things that's happening here and that I'm trying to trace is the way in which you, the U.S. government and maybe international capital, I hadn't precisely thought about it that way previously, but the kind of iterative process of learning to rule, right? And so like the idea that the United States just kind of emerges fully formed in 1945 and kind of knows how to be a world power, I think is a, is a kind of, is a kind of, ridiculous one. And instead, what we see is a kind of iterative process by which through these kinds of critiques and um, real challenges, right, the United States kind of learns what, and in the article that I have in, in the Cambridge Review of International Affairs, right, it learns what the limits to the kind of liberal international order are going to be. And so we're the, this kind of contest, this back and forth contest between Mexico, its Latin American partners, its third world partners, and the U.S. government and in international capital, right, is really a kind of decades-long learning process of how these institutions should be structured, what they can do, and the kinds of power that they have. The way that Mexico comes to be a kind of defender of the system, a conservator of the system, is really interesting. And again, it's about the thing that we were talking about in the very beginning of the interview, which is about, you know, the access to international capital. So in the earlier moment up to the mid 1940s where Mexico is excluded from the excluded from the international financial system, right? They have a real reformist push. They they are really very strong champions of a new kind of system. Once the Bretton Woods institutions are created, they don't get everything that they want out of them, but they kind of see them as important. Then as we move into the 1950s and particularly in the 1960s, right? Mexico really wants to be seen as a kind of responsible debtor, as a good debtor, as a good credit risk. And, and it is one. It becomes kind of one of the main places where this kind of foreign investment capital starts to flow, both public and private, right? So from these new institutions, but also in private credit markets. So Mexico defending these institutions, right, from kind of more radical challenges from the third world becomes a kind of guiding way that they operate in the 1950s and 1960s. And it's because they think that they've built in these kinds of particular ways to have modes of influence, right? They are close to the United States. They have built in a place for executive directors, right? So there's a real challenge, for instance, in the early 1970s, many third world countries in Latin America, and then also in Africa and Asia, begin to put forward proposals 
that the IMF basically needs to be circumvented, that there need to be new kinds of international financial institutions, that these countries should walk away from the IMF. And Mexico is really strongly saying like, no, 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 we, we built this thing, right? We tried to build these mechanisms of representation here. And so we should take advantage of those and we should reform from the inside. And so Mexico becomes this kind of conservator of this system, right? And it's because the capital is flowing. It's because they are actually experiencing the fruits of these institutions and the private capital that goes along with the kind of stamp of approval from the IMF, right, which is one of the, one of the important roles that it plays. So Mexico becomes in the 50s, 60s, into the early part of the 70s, right, even as the crisis is unfolding, a real defender of this system. And that debt will eventually come, you know, over the course of the 1970s without the creation of, you know, the Charter of Economic Rights and Duties of States. It passes the UN, but it has no actual, you know, sort of enforcement power. There aren't kind of new institutions created for third world finance, despite the kind of attempts at people at the UN Conference on Trade and Development, UNCTAD, et cetera. Um, and so what will happen is Mexico's kind of role as a kind of model debtor, right? Once we get into the petrodollar boom, Mexico will just take on massive, massive amounts of debt and their debt will balloon over the course of the 1970s, such that by the time we get to that moment in 1982, when the Mexican state realizes it can't pay its debts, right? That is the kind of moment when this whole apparatus comes crashing down. And that is the moment at which the IMF and the World Bank are kind of pressed into service together with the Bank for International Settlements and the US Treasury to kind of create this bailout package, right? To make it so that the Mexican state won't and here I should note, like, it's important that it's not just about bailing out Mexico, it's about bailing out the banks, right? Like the idea is that if Mexico goes under, all of Wall Street is going to go under with it. And so to save the international financial system from the Mexican default, right, there has to be this kind of new package. And this is the beginning of structural adjustment and austerity in Mexico that is the rescue from the 1982 debt crisis. And so that's the moment where these institutions will then come to be used to basically dismantle the post-war developmental state that Mexico has built. And so that's the kind of brutal irony, right? Like that's the 18th Brumaire moment here um, of perfecting the machine rather than breaking it. That I think, you know, to me, there is a cautionary tale there that is about the extent to which these institutions can be used to put constraints on global capital, right? And I think that that is kind of, that remains the kind of undying dream of international development, right? If we could just create the right kind of rules and international institutions for global capitalism, we could make it work for rich and poor, for North and South, for creditor and debtor. And I think that that dream continues. And I think, you know, the Mexican experience over the course of the 20th century should, you know, be read as a kind of cautionary tale there. Yeah, certainly it, it does give you give one pause. It's, you know, they 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 were able to have you know some influence. They were it worked for a while, and then it kind of uh, you know it eventually came crashing down. Um, I mean, on that on that note, are there are there lessons that you think we can draw or that people can draw for you know um, if we're thinking about reforming inter these international mm -hmm. institutions today or for you know South South cooperation today? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, what what is sort of some of the the takeaways that you would have from? Yeah, this? I mean, so one of my kind of underlying lessons here that I take away from this long experience is the extent to which in each of the episodes that I detail, Mexican state officials work really hard to compromise with their US interlocutors, right? And European interlocutors. So they moderate their demands over and over. There are always more radical demands pushing, you know, even back in the 1930s in the Inter-American Bank, right? Mexico is a kind of progenitor of this and is pushing very hard, but there are more radical countries in Latin America, you know, coming from Peru, coming from Uruguay, who are arguing for, you know, even more radical kinds of institutions. And Mexico is frequently playing this kind of moderating role and even as they do this moderation, right, they kind of frequently will, you know, kind of enter the negotiations already having some compromise in mind, right? And that compromise then gets rolled over by the organized power of capital, right? So for that reason, the, the kind of political stance that Mexico takes here, where they say, okay, if we do this thing, if we, if we sort of um, tamp down the expectations, if we moderate the demands here, if we make this fit within the framework that we think could get passed by US Congress, right? Like that will help us actually achieve this. And so they do that, they sort of, you know, 
pre-compromise on all of these proposals. And then they get run over by the organized power of global capital anyway. And so I do think that it's incredibly important to show the moments at which that happens and the mechanisms by which that happens, right? To not just assume that it was inevitable. I don't know why we would study history if we just think that like the way that things turned out is the way they were always going to turn out, right? But I do think showing the mechanisms by which that compromise is achieved between the states and then, you know, sort of vetoed by the organized power of capital should be a lesson for how we think about these kinds of international reforms today, right? If we have states sitting down at, and again, like, in climate change, we're seeing this ourselves, right? We have states sitting down to the table, you know, working really hard to come up with these kinds of diplomatic compromises where countries, you know, state governments are agreeing to particular kinds of constraints. And then global capital is saying, okay, go ahead with your constraints. I don't care, right? And so keeping that in mind as we think about these questions of reforming international governance, building new international institutions, right? I want that to kind of serve as a lesson. Maybe it's not a, maybe it's not a kind of useful lesson, a, a lesson that people can take and run with, but I think it's something we need to be aware of as we begin to think about these reforms, continue to think about these reforms and building these international institutions today. As we keep thinking about sort of these international institutions, I guess I was just thinking, you know, while you were talking, um, that your book lays well next to Quinn Slobodian's book on mm. the on the origin of these international institutions in the sense mm-hmm. that you're given you're giving very different origin stories of them, right? Mm-hmm. Like on the one hand, like you have this kind of like Latin American developmentalist model of it, and he he's, he really sees them coming from post imperial. Vienna, right. right? And it's that kind of yeah. neoliberal project. Are these, do you, do you see your history as mutually exclusive or as complementary mm. or as, you know, just sort of outlining how complicated all this stuff is and how uh, yeah. politically underdetermined these institutions are? Or yeah, how, how do you, how do you fit that? That's a good question. Together? I I do think of them as complementary, and I think of them as complementary because of the way that I think about how hegemony is constructed, right? Mm. And so, you know, in the introduction to the book, you know, I reference the the anthropologist and historian Bill Roseberry writes this kind of famous essay about uh, about his conception of hegemony and how he reads Gramsci, and he really makes clear that the important thing that he takes from Gramsci, right, is to think not about consent, but to think about contest, to think about struggle, and that in thinking about the construction of hegemony, we should be looking for the contest. We should be looking for the struggle. And so to me, if you read my book next to somebody like Quinn's book, right, we should think about the ways in which these were institutions that were, you know, they were themselves the locus of struggle. They were terrain over which there was political contest. And that political contest was happening on these kinds of north, south, east, west kind of questions. And so if we take, if we look from just one perspective, right, we might see kind of consensus, we might see a kind of way in which, you know, there is consent of the governed in a way that if we weren't looking from the bottom, right, if we weren't looking from the outside, we wouldn't necessarily see the contest. And I think so many people have written this kind of history. I don't think Quinn does this because he has a kind of particular um, emphasis, right? But I think particularly kind of US-focused historians looking at international institutions, so many have looked as though they just presumed the kind of consensus part, as though hegemony was sort of foreordained and was always going to happen. And I think actually it has happened through this kind of struggle, this contest unfolding over time. And so my book, I think of really as a complement putting together to show the kind of extent to which these there was kind of live actual political, very strong contestation going on about these institutions and these ideas as they were unfolding. So developmentalists beware of defending uh, international financial institutions, but neoliberals beware of uh, building them in the first (laughs) place. uh, Right. (laughs) All right. Well, um, maybe that's uh, a good place to wrap it. But uh, I I do always also like to ask, you know, so this is a great book. It's your dissertation. You completed it. It's out there in the world now. Uh, But you're doing uh, so many more things as well, right? I mean, you just launched with Slobodian, the History and Political Economy Project. So can you tell us a little about that project and, and, and what you're working on now? What should we expect next from, uh, uh, from Dr. Thornton? <laughs> yeah, those are both questions. Great questions. So HPE is an initiative that Quinn and I put together to really bring together both historians and historically focused social scientists working on genealogies of neoliberalism and particularly keeping in mind this emphasis on contest, right, on how neoliberalism has been contested and the way that that has shaped the neoliberalism that we got to kind of counter what we think of as really US and European focused narratives, right? So I think Quinn like puts it, he says, I told this particular story about Vienna, right? But like, that's not, or, you know, Geneva, that's not like necessarily the the only story. And so what we're trying to do is kind of build out a kind of broader history of 
neoliberalism of how it came to look the way that it does through building this network of scholars who were doing work related to that. So we've brought together an advisory board of a couple dozen historians and, and sociologists and political scientists who are thinking about these things. And we're going to start giving, you know, like small research grants and doing translations of work in other languages. And we're really trying to build a kind of corpus that gets us beyond what, you know, for instance, the kind of US focused history of capitalism world has done. So we're trying to really think about how we would bring in sort of more international perspectives, perspectives at different scales, right? Like taking taking seriously the workplace as a site of neoliberalization, not just kind of the international institution, those kinds of questions. So at various scales, across time and really ideas in action is a key part of how HPE is thinking about this, right? Not just kind of intellectual history, which, you know, Quinn has written so brilliantly, but thinking about how neoliberalism came to be instantiated through particular policies, actions, what that looked like, how that shaped what neoliberalism actually has been, is now, and could be in the future, right? So the idea is to really build a corpus of scholarship that helps us undermine neoliberal hegemony. But in to do so, I think we need to understand it better and we need to understand it from a much broader perspective than we have thus far had. And so that's what the project is trying to do. I myself, as part of this project, I'm working on my second book, which again, you know, draws from the themes that we've been talking about. And the project is going to explore historically, really from the post-war period up to the present, how actors within these international institutions, officials at the IMF, the World Bank, the WTO, have understood and narrated and reacted to protest against them over time. Um, so that project is called To Reckon with the Riot, and it's about trying to read institutional archives of the institutions themselves, right, in their publications, in their correspondence, et cetera, to try to get at how officials within international institutions have reacted to, you know, not only kind of big protests against international financial institutions, which happened much earlier than we thought, 1947 in Mexico City, 1970 in Copenhagen, right? So it's but not just 99 in the- It's not just 99. It goes back, it goes back much, much further, right? Huh. And so I'm trying to, you know, draw an alternative history of that to show that these kinds of you know, protests against these international institutions have this much longer history. Um, but I'm also interested in, for instance, you know, the food riot, the austerity, anti-austerity riot that has been, has really marked, for instance, the whole history of the IMF in a place like Argentina, right? Anti-austerity riots start in Argentina in the 1950s. And so thinking about how officials within these institutions like the IMF and the World Bank, eventually the WTO, to a lesser extent, UNCTAD and these other kinds of international economic institutions, how are they reacting to this? What do they say about protest? How do they understand it? How do they react to it? How does that change what they actually do? So I'm at the very beginning of this project, just starting to read through secondary and published primary sources, but that's what I'll be working on for the next couple of years, yeah. All right, well, it's been really great. We'll look forward to that. Thanks, Christy. Thank you. Reviving Growth Keynesianism is produced by me, Nick Johnson. The podcast is supported financially by the University of Chicago Program for Professional Advancement and Training for Humanists and Humanistic Social Scientists. If you enjoyed this discussion, please follow us wherever you subscribe to podcasts and consider leaving us a positive review, which will help us connect with more engaged listeners like you. More information on our ideas can be found at revivinggrowthkeynesianism.org. There you can also find our Patreon, we would greatly appreciate if you chose to support us. All donations allow us to put out more content for thoughtful listeners like you. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.